The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. Tipped off. Michael Harris has it. And he's over. Here's the miracle of all miracles. December 23rd, 1972, nearly 50 years ago to the day, the Immaculate Reception, widely regarded as the most iconic play in NFL history, with Franco Harris snagging the ball out of the air after a collision between Frenchie Fuqua and Jack Tatum, as you heard the great Kurt Gowdy and Al D. Regattis on the call that particular Saturday afternoon during the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. There were no wild card rounds back then. There was a wild card team, uh, but this was the first of the playoff games in 1972. Franco Harris snagging it out of the air, running 60 yards for a touchdown with five seconds to go in that game to beat the Raiders 13 to 7. Last night, Franco Harris, at the age of 72 years old, passed away uh, suddenly, uh, and there, as of now, is no cause of death. It was not expected uh, because he did a radio show yesterday with Chris Mad Dog Russo on the Mad Dog channel uh, on XM Sirius. Uh, Really, really sad news from the world of the NFL. Franco Harris at 72 years old, part of one of the most memorable plays, really the most memorable play. It's been voted that way many times over the years. The Immaculate Reception. Uh, passed away at the age of 72. Rest in peace, certainly to Franco Harris. But the game 50 years ago uh, is being remembered this week and will be remembered and was planned to be remembered in many different ways this upcoming weekend. 
the December 24th, the Saturday night game, is Raiders and Steelers to uh, remember, to to commemorate uh, the 50-year anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. That's the night game on Saturday night, the standalone game, Raiders and Steelers. Uh, There's been a lot of buildup to this. And then just unbelievably the timing of Franco Harris, uh, the most famous player from that play, passing away so suddenly. Uh, That play is one of the first plays and one of the first games I really remember. Now, the previous season is the first NFL season I remember. You know, I don't remember a lot of the specifics of the 1971 season, but I do remember it as George Allen's first season here in Washington and Washington making the playoffs for the first time, you know, in I think it was at that point 25 years. Uh, them losing a playoff game to the San Francisco 49ers. I don't remember that game as much as I remember a Monday night game against the Rams where it was the Ramskins, which was the nickname for George Allen's Redskins because he had acquired um, and signed so many of his former players from Los Angeles. But that next year, 1972, was really the first full season I remember vividly because Washington was 11-3. and They were the NFC Eastern Division champions. They ultimately went to the Super Bowl where they faced the Miami Dolphins in Super Bowl VII, the Dolphins completing that perfect season, uh, beating Washington 14-7. And they are still now uh, in the merger era, the only team to ever go undefeated regular season and postseason. Thank Washington, by the way, uh, this year for derailing uh, Philadelphia's attempt uh, at that. But that 72 season and that game in particular, the Immaculate Reception game, I remember. I don't remember the details. I've gone back and looked them up over the years. I remember watching that game with my father. He clearly had a wager on the game because he screamed out loud. And I, I remember it so well about how he was going crazy because it was a play that no one had ever seen uh, before. You know, what's interesting about that particular day, it was the first of what, what would become two incredible NFL playoff games. Later on that afternoon, the Cowboys beat the 49ers coming from behind 28-13 to in the fourth quarter, scoring 17 unanswered points to beat the 49ers at Candlestick 30-28 to to advance to the NFC Championship game the following weekend where they would take on Washington on New Year's Eve 1972. That was a very famous playoff game uh, on its own. Uh, the Cowboys, I think, having the biggest comeback in NFL playoff history uh, behind, of course, Roger Staubach, who was the king of comebacks. Um, they recovered an onside kick uh, to get the ball back and win the game. And then the next day, which was Christmas Eve, Washington beat Green Bay 16-3. to And then uh, the Dolphins beat... Uh, the Browns 20 to 14. What was interesting about that postseason is that there wasn't a guaranteed home field advantage for the team with the best record. It was done by a rotating basis divi- by division. So every year, 
Uh, there were three divisions back then in each conference: the you know the Eastern Division, the Central Division, and the Western Division of each the AFC and the NFC. And it was on a rotating basis that home field advantage for the championship game was determined. So Pittsburgh, after beating the Raiders on the immaculate reception play, actually it was the AFC Central's turn to host the actual AFC championship game. So the Dolphins, who were 14-0 that year and then had won a playoff game at home against the Browns, had to travel to Pittsburgh and Three Rivers Stadium for the AFC championship game where they would beat uh, the Steelers 21-17 to to advance to the Super Bowl, but they had to do it on the road. They were 14-0. and the, the Steelers were the 11-3 and team, and so they got to host the AFC title game. That was the last year, I'm pretty sure, that that took place. Washington, it didn't matter um, because the Cowboys were a wild-card team, so Washington hosted that NFC championship game against the Cowboys and then ultimately played the Dolphins. But the Immaculate Reception game was a game in which there was no score at halftime. It was scoreless. It was 3-0 Pittsburgh at the end of three quarters. Ken Stabler, who was the backup quarterback in that game to Daryl LaMonica for the Raiders, came into the game and ran 30 yards for a touchdown uh, late in the fourth quarter to give the Raiders a 7-6 lead. And it looked like it was going to hold up before it was 4th and 10 from their own 40-yard line, 22 seconds to go. Bradshaw set up, threw it down the middle. There was a collision between Frenchie Fuqua, who was the other running back, really the fullback for the Steelers, and Jack Tatum. Uh, And the ball was deflected uh, into the hands of Franco Harris, who was running downfield on the play. The ball came to him. He snagged it right before it hit the ground, ran into the end zone, five seconds left in the game. And really, you know, you heard Gowdy uh, call it. Um, It was just an amazing play that took the referees a while to figure out what happened. And then they finally ruled touchdown. Steelers win the game. In that game, all right, there were two... Uh, other big things from that game that uh, you know kind of get you know and, and certainly so play second and third fiddle to the fact that that play was so amazing. Number one was the controversy associated with the play. Back then, you couldn't have two offensive players touch the ball on the same play. So the referees were trying to figure out whether or not Frenchie Fuqua had actually touched the ball. If he had, it would have made the catch. It would have nullified the catch because Harris would have been the second player on offense to touch the ball. Now that rule later changed, and then any kind of deflection off offensive, defensive players didn't matter. Um, It was in play as long as the ball didn't hit the ground. But the rule back then was you could only have one offensive player touch the ball on a forward pass. So there was a lot of controversy as to whether or not 
Fuqua touch the pass when he collided with safety Jack Tatum. Well, it was ruled that Fuqua never touched it. Therefore, the catch off the deflection, it came off of Tatum. Harris caught it. But still to this day, the Raiders believe that Frenchie Fuqua, and they believe to have video evidence or film evidence of, you know, enhanced Fuqua fingers touching the ball off of that deflection. Uh, But it wasn't ruled that way. The other thing, too, was just this. The number of future Hall of Famers in the game. The Steelers had not yet won the first of what would be four Super Bowls. This was the early 70s. This was Dolphins Raiders. Okay, the Dolphins really uh, for sure. And the Colts as well um, in the AFC uh, back then. The Colts, uh, the, the, the Chiefs won uh, the Super Bowl in 70. Uh, because the Jets won it in 69. 71 was the Colts over the Cowboys. 72 was the Super Bowl in which the Dolphins beat the Redskins in that season. 73 was a Dolphins repeat, and then it started in 74. The 74 uh, Dolphins, um, the 74 Steelers, excuse me, uh, won the Super Bowl beating the Vikings. The 75 Steelers won the Super Bowl beating Uh, the Cowboys, and then uh, after the Raiders and Broncos won the AFC title, the Raiders won the Super Bowl in 76, the Broncos lost to the Cowboys in 77, the Steelers won two more in 78 and 79. There were 13 future Hall of Famers in the game, all right? Most of them, or the majority of them, playing for the Oakland Raiders. George Blanda, all right, was the kicker and the third-string quarterback. Ken Stabler. Uh, Fred Bolitnikoff, the center, Jim Otto, Art Shell, Gene Upshaw, Willie Brown, Cliff Branch was a returner, wasn't even a receiver really in the mix, future Hall of Famer. The Steelers had Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Jack Ham, Mel Blunt, and Mean Joe Green. Now, you may say, well, what about all the other Steeler Hall of Famers? They weren't on the 72 team. Guys like Mike Webster and Jack Lambert and Lynn Swan and Tony Dungy and um, uh, Donnie Schell and Stallworth, they all came later and were a part of the Super Bowl teams. The 72 Steelers didn't win the Super Bowl. They lost the following week. Um, really incredible, uh, you know, games from that particular season and just incredible players back then. Those Steeler teams with Franco Harris were incredible. Franco Harris had a backfield, by the way, of Bradshaw uh, and Rocky Blyer for much of it. Uh, by the way, Preston Pearson was a part of those early Steelers teams. He became a big part of the Cowboy teams uh, later on. Um, But Franco was a great back, a Hall of Fame back, um, you know, a Penn State product, uh, you know, and and a great player in college and was one of those great running backs of the 1970s. And, you know, he was going to be a big part of this weekend in Pittsburgh. You know, he's one of the true iconic Pittsburgh athletes. You know, the 70s produced so many great Steelers, also produced a Pittsburgh Pirates World Series winner with Willie Stargell, you know, and that team over uh, the Orioles in 79. Obviously, they've had, they've had Mario Lemieux and Sidney Crosby on the hockey team. No NBA team in Pittsburgh. But really, their heroes are the 70s Steelers and all of the other great Steeler teams that have come, you know, along afterwards. 
Um, Franco Harris, dead at the age of 72. Really, really sad. And the timing of it, just uh, incredible with the celebration um, this weekend of the Immaculate Reception uh, game. Uh, It'll be sad Christmas Eve, I'm sure, when that game is played in Pittsburgh, by the way. Um, That game will be uh, at Heinz or whatever they call the stadium now. And by the way, what will be brutal, brutal temperatures um, on Christmas Eve night in Pittsburgh. Temperatures down near zero degrees uh, for that one. We're going to be brutally cold here uh, as well um, over the weekend. Uh, But, uh, man, uh, a lot of sadness, but a a lot of incredible memories conjured up uh, with the news early this morning that Franco Harris passed away. Two guests on the show today, neither of whom is Cooley. Cooley uh, can't make it today, but he promised Friday. So Tommy, tomorrow, Cooley on Friday. Uh, the two guests are Ben Standick, who will join us next, and then Dave Feldman will be on with us. We haven't had Feldy on the show in a long time. Feldy's out in the Bay Area, covers the Niners, all the local teams out there. Um, but we'll, we'll get a preview of the Niners with Feldy at the end of the show. The show today is brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, Kevin DC, and they'll double your first deposit. I saw something early this morning that I've got to share with you, and I've got it up on my bookie right now. The Saints play the Browns on Saturday in Cleveland. Weather is going to be a factor for a lot of the games. We just talked about how cold it will be in Pittsburgh on Saturday night. I mean, this cold front that's coming through uh, the Midwest and the East Coast is going to create one of the coldest Christmas Eve and Christmas days we've had in a long, long time. I think 33 years. I think 1989 was the last time that we were predicted to be this cold on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, The Saints are playing in Cleveland. Temperatures uh, right around 11 degrees at kickoff with 25 to 30 mile an hour winds. The total for the game is 31 and a half at my bookie. Uh, I saw this earlier this morning and I'm like, my God, I don't think I've seen a total this low ever. I mean, maybe many, many years ago. Well, the lowest um, this century was 30 and a half. In 2006, Chicago was playing Carolina, and the total was 30 and a half. The game sailed over the total. It was a 29 to 21 uh, final. Uh, The most recent number that was lower than 31 and a half, 31 was the total in a game between Cleveland and Cincinnati in 2008. 14 to nothing was the final score. And since, you know, totals were a part of NFL betting opportunities, uh, you've got to go back to 1993 to find. Um, a game that was lower than the games we just talked about. The total was 28 for a game between the Patriots and the Colts in 1993. There was also a 28 in 1993 between the Lions and the Bengals. Uh, The Patriots and Colts, uh, 38-0 was the final, so that game went over the total. And the Lions and the Bengals, that was a 20-14 to final score, so that went 
over the total. I'll tell you right now, at my bookie, there are a lot of low totals this week. Tomorrow night's game is 36-and-a-half. Jacksonville and the Jets, that game's going to be played in heavy rain. Then the Saints-Browns at 31-and-a-half. Uh, 36-and-a-half between Houston and Tennessee. Um, 40 between Buffalo and Chicago. 36 between Atlanta and Buffalo. Washington-San Francisco is 38 right now at my bookie. Um, Raiders Steelers in the uh, immaculate reception, uh, you know, memory game uh, on Saturday night. Thirty nine is the total, and then Broncos Rams. Boy, that's a stinker on Christmas Day, huh? Thirty six and a half is the number. You've got a lot of low totals. Uh, by the way, I did find a red uh, a Washington Cleveland line for next week. My bookie has it. Washington right now. A two and a half point favorite at home next Sunday, one o'clock against Cleveland. They've got to win two of their final three. If they don't beat the 49ers and they're a seven and a half point dog, um, they will be favored over Cleveland, two and a half point favorites. Of course, that's subject to change depending on what happens during the weekend. And then I think. Dallas, more likely than not, won't have anything to play for, might rest all of their starters, and I think it's possible Washington could be a favorite in the season finale over Dallas. MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, KevinDC. Um, several of you have tweeted me to say, I know that you've got the whole playoff thing figured out, but Detroit's not losing Sheehan. They've got to win out. That makes the San Francisco game a must win. Well, if you think that the Lions are going to win out and they certainly are playing well enough to beat Carolina, uh, Chicago, and then Green Bay at Lambeau, that's why you have to keep rooting for Green Bay. You know, Green Bay's got a big game Christmas Day early against the Dolphins. They're five point underdogs. And if they can pull that off and stay alive, then Aaron Rodgers is still the quarterback and the, and the Packers have something to play for in that season finale at Lambeau against Detroit. So that's crucial, especially if you believe, like I believe, that the San Francisco game is a long shot. So I'm looking at a win over Cleveland, a win over Dallas, and 9-7-1 and beating out um, you know, a Lions team that finishes nine and eight, losing one of their final three games. Look, I think Detroit's going to have a tough game this weekend at Carolina. Carolina's still alive for the NFC South. Uh, but yeah, the only way you can guarantee a postseason berth with three weeks to go is to win out, which means you've got to win Saturday against the 49ers. Um, if you believe the, the Lions are going to run the table, then Saturday's a must win. If you believe that um, you know the Lions are going to run the table and the Giants will win at least one more, then it's an absolute must win. Because the other way Washington would get in is if the Giants lost all three of their remaining games. It, you know, I'm talking about Washington winning two because that would put uh, you know the, the Giants at eight, eight and one, which, as a reminder, was my predicted Washington record. Before the season started, I predicted that they would go eight, eight and one. That's still in play. Not rooting for it. Rooting for ten, six and one, and a playoff berth. Uh, I'm guessing that it's going to be nine, seven and one. 
I think they can beat Cleveland, although, you know, the, the point spread, as I just laid out for you, will, will tell you that this is, you know, a toss-up kind of a game almost. You know, Cleveland may have something to play for if they beat the Saints on Sunday. You'd like to see the Saints pull off the win over Cleveland so Cleveland is eliminated coming to Washington. If they win over the Saints, they're still alive, mathematically anyway, at 7-8 and eight, uh, coming into Washington next week. Uh, but I think they can beat Cleveland, and I think they can beat a Dallas team that will likely treat the game as a bye week to get to 9-7-1 and one and have, you know, again, I said it yesterday, a coin flip chance to make the postseason. Because I, I would say Detroit winning all three is like a 50-50 proposition. And I haven't forgotten about Seattle. I just don't see, see Seattle running the table to finish 10-7. and seven. I don't. Now, the key would be this weekend. If Seattle somehow goes to Arrowhead and wins, and look, the Chiefs are not a good defensive team. They're not, and Seattle can score. So if Seattle went to Kansas City this weekend and won, that would be bad for Washington because their final two games are in Seattle against a Jets team that's flailing right now and can't score, and then the Rams, who are completely done. We haven't talked a lot about, you know, just – the Rams season, the Super Bowl, the defending Super Bowl champions um, very possibly will end up with the second worst record in the NFL. Probably no worse than the third or fourth worst record in the NFL. Lots of injuries clearly for the Rams and their defending champion uh, season. Uh, I don't think you know we saw it that early. I mean, even though they got blown out by the Bills in the opener in that Thursday night opener, you know they came back and they were two and one after wins over Atlanta and on the road against the Cardinals, um, and so still thought they had a chance. But remember, Matt Stafford was never healthy. He was injured during the off season. You know, and so there was a lot of discussion about whether or not, you know, he might start the year, if you recall, back in August on injured reserve. By the way, Stafford did come out and say he has no plans to retire. You know, he hopes to come back next year as a fully healthy starter for the Los Angeles Rams. So I wanted to mention a couple of things real quickly before I, I get to. Uh, a topic that will lead into my conversation with Ben Standing. First of all, Bradley Beal had one of the best finishing performances I think I've seen from him in his career. Now, I think as a young player in some of those playoff games, especially if you think about that series against Toronto, he was great. But last night, Washington was on the road against Phoenix. Um, the Suns, you know, one of the better teams in the NBA. Washington, as Tommy and I talked about yesterday, in the midst of a 10-game losing skid. Uh, No Devin Booker for Phoenix, okay? That's a big deal. Booker scored 58 in a game over the weekend. He didn't play, but Porzingis didn't play for Washington. But Bradley Beal, with the uh, game on the line in the fourth quarter, was sensational. He totally took the game over. They were down 10 with five and a half minutes to go. He scored 10 of a uh, of, of a, one of the better fourth quarter performances he's ever had. 10 of his 16 in the fourth quarter over the final five and a half minutes rallying the Wizards from down 10 to a 113 to 110 win. He finished with 27 on the night, um, but it was really, it was him. Uh, I didn't watch the game live. It was on very late. But I watched the condensed version uh, early this morning before the radio show, and it was really impressive to watch Beal take over the game and finish. So many times we've seen Beal try to take over the game and not finish. 
He was really good, got to the free throw line. He just willed them to a win over Phoenix to end a 10-game losing skid. By the way, Kyle Kuzma was really good again, 29 points. It's going to be interesting, you know, when you get to the trade deadline uh, period with Kuzma because he's going to be a desired uh, entity, and, you know, they're going to have to sign him to a deal when this season uh, is over. All right, uh, this last thing before we get to Ben. We played some of the sound from Ron Rivera yesterday, you know, the back and forth with David Aldridge, um, where he kind of suggested, to be frank, I've got to think about it with respect to the quarterback, Taylor Heineke. His interview with J.P. Finley, he indicated that had they not driven down the field and scored early in the third quarter, that Wentz likely would have come into the game. So Ron Rivera right now appears to be closing in. And I say Ron, it's Ron and Scott Turner. Uh, They appear to be closing in on a quarterback switch if things don't go well in Santa Clara on Christmas Eve. You know, Washington is 5-2-1 since Carson Wentz got hurt and Taylor Heineke took over. But the 5-2-1 run, I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is a 5-2-1 run keyed by an outstanding defense number one. And then the offensive production, which has been very underwhelming, has been a result of a solid running game. Washington, during this Taylor Heineke eight-game starting streak, is 5-2-1. and one. That's true. They're also 25th in scoring, 25th in the red zone on offense, 27th on third down on offense. They're averaging 19.4 points per game during the 5-2-1 run, allowing 17.6 points per game uh, on defense. All right, And really, if you take into consideration, 17.6 points would be lower if not for the opponents scoring on defense. The Packers had a pick six against Taylor Heineke. The Giants scored on the sack fumble by Thibodeau Sunday night. And then the Colts, Vikings, Eagles, and the Giants in the first game in Jersey all had super short fields after turnovers that they turned into touchdowns. So they're averaging 19.4 points per game on offense during the 5-2-1 run, and they're allowing just 17.6 on defense, but that number would be lower during this eight-game stretch if the offense wasn't contributing to the points allowed. You know, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 or 16 points a game they'd be giving up. They're 25th in the league in scoring, and over this stretch, they're fourth in the league in points allowed. But again, it would be better if the offense wasn't helping out that points allowed number or hurting it. This team is more than good enough on defense. And, you know, we'll ask Ben, but I think Benjamin St. Juice will be back for the game on Saturday. I think that's going to be huge for them. I really do. They just haven't been good enough on offense. You know, so with three games left and a playoff spot at stake, you're not a responsible coaching staff if you're not evaluating and saying, hey, we're 5-2-1, and one. that's great, but what does our prospects look like? What do our prospects look like moving forward with the offense struggling as much as it has? Good teams, good franchises, good coaching staffs are always self-evaluating. 
Minnesota is 11-3. and three. Kevin O'Connell has been asked back-to-back weeks, or maybe like three weeks running, if he's considering major changes to their defense, including the coordinator. So he hasn't made any major changes yet defensively. They're terrible on defense. But these are reasonable things to self-evaluate on. You can't just say 5-2-1, and one, we're good. We don't have to change anything. That's not responsible. Ron Rivera has a team right now good enough on defense. And you look at the offensive playmakers that they have to win a playoff game and to scare the shit out of somebody else in another one. But the quarterback, and to be fair to the quarterback, the offensive line, is really limiting their potential. You know, I don't know if I said this on Monday or Tuesday, but I was having a conversation with a Giant fan friend of mine, and he just said, and I think it's true, if you guys had Daniel Jones, you'd be so good. Daniel Jones doesn't have any weapons, none on offense. If Jones were on this offense, it would be a much better offense. I agree with that. I don't really care what you think about Daniel Jones, where he ranks. He's much better than what they have right now. Much better. I mean, look at what he's been working with offensively. And by the way, the defense hasn't been great. They've got you know a great young player in Thibodeau, it would appear, and Ojolari in his second year, right? I think Ojolari's his second year. Um, they've got Lawrence and Leonard Williams, and they've got a really good pass rush, and it's getting better. But their secondary has been pretty horrible, certainly with the injuries. It's not like they have great linebackers. Daniel Jones with Brian Dables really making, I think, a statement You better keep me and just get some weapons because you may not do much better than me. Daniel Jones is 6'5". He can make every throw. He's incredibly mobile. It's not that I'm like a massive Daniel Jones fan. I do think that he deserves more time in New York. He's had multiple coaching staffs and no weapons. Imagine him with Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, Curtis Samuel, you know, as receivers. Uh, you know, and by the way, the, the running back situation with Robinson and with Gibson and McKissick when he was around, we kind of forget about McKissick. Uh, not much of a factor this year with the, with with again another injury and and maybe you know a severe one. I like McKissick, but that neck injury and then last year the concussion and the neck. Um, you hope that he's got a future. I mean, n- there isn't a player. I will agree with you in the backfield, the equivalent to Saquon Barkley. But that's all he has. His offensive line with Evan Neal and Andrew Thomas, you know, they've got some talent there. Um, Washington, you know, I I probably would say their offensive line is not as good as the giant offensive line, but they've got so many more playmakers. You know, the the thing that Washington is clearly considering, you know, because we've, we've seen it, we've heard it, And I told you after the Giant game, and I was surprised to have heard this, that had he not completed that fourth and four and had they not gone down the field um, and tied that game, or if the center for the Giants, Feliciano, didn't get that taunting penalty, that Carson Wentz was going to start the game uh, Sunday night. They're ready to pull the trigger. They so want to pull the trigger. Now, from my standpoint, Here's what I don't know. I don't know where Carson Wentz is with respect to comfort level with the offense. It's obvious, and Logan Thomas told us this on the radio show, that 
Taylor Heineke's advantage more than anything else. Forget about the mobility advantage because he does have an advantage there. But the real advantage was he knew the offense and Carson didn't. Carson was struggling with the offense. You want to talk about all the times he got sacked? Well, he didn't have the running game, didn't play with the formula that they've been playing with recently, didn't have a defense that was as good early in the season as it's been during this 5-2-1 stretch. But he also didn't know the offense. So all of those sacks, all of those negative plays could have been a result of him not being comfortable in the offense. So if they think he's much more comfortable and the team around him is better, they may think, and the reason we've kind of heard a lot of this and have heard what Ron said, is they do think it would be better with Carson Wentz. If they do, they should go for it. I don't think they should wait, although I think the 49ers, personally, I'd play Heineke because of his mobility. But Wentz is not a statue, people. He's mobile. You know, he doesn't have that many fewer rushing yards in many fewer games than Taylor Heineke has. Here, I'll pull up those numbers right now. I actually looked at them earlier this morning. I just forget what they were. Um, uh, Carson Wentz in six games rushed for 79 yards. In eight games, Taylor Heineke has 100 yards. And by the way, his biggest rushing uh, output was Sunday night. And I need to see much more of that. I need to see much more of the read option stuff with him making the right decisions on the read option, like on the play where Brian Robinson went for minus two. He should have never had the ball in his hands. Taylor should have kept it and run with it. And if that was an RPO in combination with a read option, he should have thrown it, or, you know, because there were a couple of those two where you had Dotson or Samuel out in the flat as an option as well. Taylor's got to make better decisions on those plays, especially Sunday, S- Sunday, Saturday against the Niners. But Wentz isn't a statue. You know, Wentz last year in Indy uh, rushed for uh, 215 yards on the season. You know, what did Taylor rush for last year in, in basically a full season uh, as well? It was more than that, but how much more than that? I'm checking quickly here. Um, he rushed for 313 yards, not a lot more in the games he played in in 2021. Carson Wentz isn't as mobile. I'm not suggesting that as Taylor Heineke. And he's also not as evasive and he's not as good off schedule, but he's not a statue. Personally, my belief is, based on what I saw in those first six games, I'd stick with Heineke. I would definitely stick with him through the 49er game against that defense. But they know so much more. They know where he is comfort-wise with the offense, and they may think that's going to make a huge difference. They may think with Brian Robinson Jr. in the backfield and this formula of trying to stay ahead of the chains, which you know they haven't done with respect to third-down conversions, uh, they may think that they've got a, a, an upgrade in Wentz Part 2. All right, Ben Standing next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jumping on with us right now is our good friend Ben Standing from The Athletic. Subscribe to The Athletic, people. It's cheap, and it's totally worth it. Uh, Just to read Ben and David Aldridge and Britt and Josh and Tarek, all the people that cover uh, sports here locally, Uh, I'm a subscriber. You should be as well. Uh, Follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standing, and you can listen to Ben's podcast, Standing Room Only. Ben's headed out for Coordinator Day, which is usually Thursday. Thursday, but because of the Saturday game, Scott Turner and Jack Del Rio will speak today. Uh, so I want to cut to the chase here because I know you only have a limited amount of time and ask you, how short is the leash for Taylor Heineke? It seems really short based on some of the things that Ron said this week, but you were there, you read the body language, you heard the tone. How short is the leash? Yeah, I don't think it's particularly long at this point. I mean, you know, if they score three points in the first half again and San Fran has 21, I I would think Carson Wentz is in there to start the second half. If it's, you know, 10-3, maybe, you know, you're within one score, maybe not as big of a deal. Obviously, if they can continually move the ball and actually get in the end zone, then that's, you know, he should be good. But it really did sound like Ron Rivera, you, you, you parse through his comments, from post game and then this week that you know he was considering putting in Wentz if they didn't get started quickly uh, once the uh, third quarter opened. So I think that's still a possibility. And look, there's only so many games left here. Like it's you know similar to like the Chase Young thing. We can stop talking about this from a you know longer term view. There's three games left. You need to probably win two to make the playoffs. So you got to get going. And I also think if like you're thinking ahead to like we're gonna switch to Wentz before the Browns game should they lose to the Niners, then you maybe want to get him in there. Not to say you would be throwing away the Niners game, but, you know, if you're down two scores, maybe at least see what Wentz can do gives you some thoughts about going forward for the last two games also. What do you think they're thinking specifically to why they would make the change? Like, we, we, okay, we, we understand that if they don't get the fourth and four in the Meadowlands a few weeks ago, Wentz probably starts uh, on Sunday night. Sunday night, it appears as if they didn't score on that first drive in the second half. Um, Wentz was probably coming in. Now we think this is it. You know, the 49er game is it. Um, are they confident that Wentz – is in a different spot than he was the last time we saw him, which was still clearly been uncomfortable with the offense at that point. Um, and by the way, with a, a slightly lesser team around him, like, is there a confidence in Wentz to put him back in there? Or is it more, they're just, they've lost faith in Heineke. Are you saying you think there's a lesser team around if Wentz comes back in now or there was earlier in the year? It was it was a lesser team earlier in the year. When he, right, uh, right, yeah. right, for sure. 
Yes. So yeah. is it so more about? Me, I think yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to me, if they're looking at the tape, and you know, I've tried to talk to some different people around the league and who are watching them, and and, and others too. Like putting aside this week, where you know, it feels like Brad Robinson should have been given the ball more. That you know, Scott Turner's offense is getting some guys open. It's just that they're they're not executing. Um, and, and making the plays, and even when Taylor Heineke is making some of those crazy throws and, and moments where you're like, how is he doing this? What about the other ones that he's not generating? And I think there's got to be a thought of, we didn't have Brian Robinson earlier in the year. We heard Ron Rivera now multiple times this week say they need to be a, a, essentially a power-running team that the, the offense you know, starts with the run game and then goes to play action. Well, let's see what Wentz can do in that spot. Earlier in the year... They're trying to take advantage of the fact that Wentz is a bigger arm, and with no Robinson, they're looking much more like a pass-first team. Now, I think, can they stay disciplined to say, even with Wentz's big arm, we're going to stay with Robinson, but now when we go to play action, we have a guy who's got the cannon that can throw the ball to our receivers the field. So I think, to me, I think that's got to be the calculus. Obviously, the red zone has been a huge problem. Rivera's brought that up now several times. John Allen brought that up after the game which is interesting to hear a defensive player mention, you know, kind of anything about the offense. So uh, I, I think they've got to be looking at it. And, you know, one of the big calculus for, for two of the big calculations for Heineke, one, like the team mojo, you know, look, again, I, I think everybody likes Heineke. And I don't think it's an issue with Wentz, but it's, you know, you got to make the playoffs now. This isn't, uh, you know, this is this isn't friend business, this is show business, right? Or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. they got to figure out what the deal is. There and then, um, you know, I, I just think that uh, I forgot what my other point was going to be. But basically, yeah, they just got they they've got to move forward here with what they think is the best deal. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So I think the other question is regarding Heineke's mobility and how that helps the offensive line. No doubt it does. But there and the offensive line is giving up a higher pressure rate now with Heineke than they did with Wentz, which is saying something. But the Giants have got to Wentz or got to Heineke a bunch of times in these last two games, and I think one thing I, I kind of wonder is: is it worth staying with him, knowing that okay he's still getting hit, but we're also lacking the big play? Versus okay, fine, maybe Wentz gets an extra sack a game, but we open up the field uh, when he's in there for play action. I, I mean, I wonder if that's a, a, a thought as well. If it's just about the offensive line, then Heineke's going to stay. But if you factor in what you're missing by him not playing, then I, I wonder how much that's going to matter at this point. Yeah, I think that, you know, if, you know, you said something that I've said before, which is if Wentz comes back, they should stick with the formula that they've had with with Taylor Heineke. They actually started that formula against Chicago. They actually tried to do it against Dallas, actually. They really tried to be a run-first team, stay ahead of the chains against Dallas. Um, you know, they, they they threw a couple of bombs, obviously, against Tennessee. Um, but I, I would just wonder if, if they're sitting there going, look, he's come along, he's further along, plus we've dialed it back in terms of what we're going to ask him to do in, in the drop-back game. Um, and now we've got a chance on some of these plays where we have to connect with a Curtis Samuel in the fourth quarter or with a Logan Thomas on the opening drive. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've got, you know, countless numbers of plays from all of these games that are missed. Like, what are they waiting for? 
if that's what they believe. I'm not suggesting that they do believe that. Maybe they think it's just a marginal upgrade, but they just they, they want to go to, to, to they want to give Wentz a, a chance. But if they really do believe that with that formula that Wentz can do the same thing Taylor's doing with one exception, and that is get the ball down the field accurately more often. What are they waiting for? I mean, I think they're waiting for the fear of they're wrong. And, like, you know, I mean, even though they've lost, even though their last two games are being, you know, 0-1-1, and and even with all the questions about Heineke, you know, they are where they are, right? They're currently in this position of being the seventh seed. And, you know, if you ride this out, like, I, don't, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just think, like, if you go to Wentz and it falls apart, they only win one of their last three or two or, or, or I mean, sorry, one or zero of these games, that's going to really reverberate back on Ron Rivera and new ownership and all those types of things. Uh, but then, you know, if you stay with Heineke, well, I mean, look, he was a hot guy and worked out until it didn't and whatever. Like, you, you know, maybe he even says, hey, we, you know, we, we, we knew we needed a quarterback and circumstances broke the way they did and, we went with Heineke. So I think I'm imagining that's as much as anything else. And, you know, uh, that, that is a huge component of a lot of what decisions are made in these situations. Because even if they all say they don't pay attention to what the media says or fans say, they, you know, they, they all hear. It's not often you see somebody make a really bold move. I mean, that said, I don't think this is a bold move. Going back to the guy, you trade a lot of picks for, you're paying, you're paying a lot of money who clearly has some of the bit bigger tools that they teams look for in the modern NFL. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it, Heineke has done well. And, you know, all, you know, I'm sure he's taking the pulse of the locker room um, at this point as well. So I imagine that's as much the case as anything. What if they're wrong uh, as to why they're not doing anything? Um, what kind of chance do you give him Saturday? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think I give him a decent one, only from the standpoint of Brock Purdy has played pretty well. But he's still a guy that was, you know, he, this will be what his second start, the last pick in the draft, uh, a rookie. Like, even if he was the first pick in the draft, you know, in your second start, you're still not exactly, you know, sure where everything, how everything is working on the NFL level. Um, of course, the, the Niners have a bunch of weapons. I'm fascinated to see how Washington will deal with covering Christian McCaffrey. How do you handle Joey Bosa coming off the edge when they've had issues? Um, you know, we saw what Kayvon Thibodeau just did to them in this last game. So, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle, and I would obviously pick the Niners to win. I just think, is this the game where the defense for Washington um, gets back to playmaking mode? They didn't have a sack or a turnover this past game, but if they can, you know, hold true to what they do. Uh, we talked to Benjamin St. Just a little bit yesterday, who sounds like he's going to play. Um, you know, he was saying, look, uh, <laughs> Brock Purdy is a bit of an unknown, but what's known is he's a rookie with a little bit of experience, and if we can stay solid with what we do and not give him easy looks, let's put the onus on him to you know make the you know make the player make the mistake. I think that's kind of the key. They need that kid to sort of botch it because it's hard to see how this offense, meaning Washington, scores you know <laughs> more than twenty um, in general, let alone against one of the best defenses in the league. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think that's got to be the hope they can somehow mess Brock Purdy up in ways we haven't seen yet. Uh, Nick Bosa leads the NFL in sacks. Miles Garrett's third, and Micah Parsons is fourth. So that's their final three games. Um, if Parsons ends up playing, depending on the situation with Dallas, uh, where are we on Chase Young right now? Uh, I 
know. I feel like I say to me every week so far it's been right, which is to say until it happens, I'm not believing it's going to happen. I mean, I do think Ron Rivera has, you know, subtly tried to, I wouldn't say pressure him, but like tried to subtly put out there through the media and probably to Chase as well. Hey, man, like, you know, are you in or you out? Like, we need you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you got to make a call here. The, the doctor is saying he's good. So it's up to you. Um, that's such a hard thing to know how to read, right? I mean, we can't get inside Chase's head in terms of what he's feeling, what where is his confidence level, et cetera. So, I, you know, I, until he until I see it, I guess I'm not going to believe it. And then I think the reality is here. If he doesn't, you know, we may already be too late. But if he's not playing now, I think you almost have to scrap it because if they actually do make the playoffs, are you really at this point then going to risk a rusty version of Chase Young out there over a healthier version of whoever else you want to point to among the defensive ends for these big games, right? I mean, they're in the playoffs now, meaning the these games are all that important. You know, it's kind of if they lose any one of them, they might be done. And how much are you really risking um, putting a guy out there that hasn't played? Ben is out of breath because he's left his car <laughs> and he's walking quickly to the uh, to the park in Ashburn to get to Turner and Del Rio uh, coming up here shortly. Um, yeah, I, the Chase Young thing is is interesting. I, I, I'm with you. I'll believe it when I see it. My guess is that we're not going to see him until 2023. Last one real quickly. Um, yes or no on St. Juice Saturday? He said he was in. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'll go with that. I mean, I thought he was close last week. So, yeah, if he's saying that, that, that's a good sign. And, you know, obviously they need him for sure because uh, San Fran has weapons. And, you know, this defense is going to be better with the Saints out there. All right. Uh, appreciate this. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Ben Standig, everybody. Uh, up next, we talk to uh, Dave Feldman. Been a while since we've had Feldy on the podcast. Uh, he's one of the best dudes out there, and he covers the 49ers for NBC Sports Bay Area. That's up next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Don't forget to rate us and review us if you get an opportunity wherever uh, that opportunity uh, presents itself, especially on Apple and Spotify. Apple gives you a chance to rate us up to five stars. Uh, we would appreciate that if you feel that way. Also, a quick one to two sentence review really helps us out. Uh, joining me on the podcast right now uh, is a good friend, Dave Feldman, legendary local sportscaster at Channel 5 for so many years. Feldy's doing games, college basketball games, that is, uh, for uh, ESPN, and he's been out in the Bay Area for several years now working for NBC Sports Bay Area, covering uh, all the local teams out there, including the 49ers. Um, it's always great to have Feldy on the show. I'll just start with this. From afar, the 49ers look really, really good. They look like a Super Bowl contender. How good are they? Uh, first of all, Kevin, that's the nicest intro I've ever had. So I will come on your podcast anytime you ask. Thank you very much. Well, you always do. Um, uh, they're good. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you, you always make me sound so much better than I am. The Niners are really, really good. And if you think about that they started the season with Trey Lance and the first game he gets hurt, and Jimmy Garoppolo comes in and does really well, and then he just gets hurt, and now the last player, Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy from Iowa State, who no one knows anything about except that he played four years in college, which no one does anymore. Um, they are a very good team. Offensively, uh, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Christian McCaffrey now, um, George Kittle. They're just so good. And it seems to me, and a lot of people out here, that Kyle Shanahan now, who you know obviously from D.C. when he worked for his dad there, is calling more creative plays now that Brock Purdy is the quarterback. They had some play calls last week on Thursday night when they beat Seattle in Seattle to clinch the division that we hadn't seen earlier this season. And like, like what? That like what plays? One of the best. Okay, so the first touchdown to Kittle was this double fake they call Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It's a fake handoff one way, a fake the other way, and then the guy's got to have the presence of mind to not only fake two handoffs going two different ways, but then wait and look at Kittle over the middle. And that was the first play to Kittle. And uh, we, we didn't see Jimmy G do that a lot. And we certainly didn't see Trey Lance do that a lot. Is there a thought that Purdy might be better than both of them? Uh, yes, there is. I think the sample size is too small. But there are people that think that and that have discussed that. Uh now, no one knew who Purdy was at first. Now they've seen him a couple of times. We'll see his people game plan him more. But he is a remarkably composed young guy who doesn't seem to be rattled. And the team seems to totally have faith in them. Not that they, you know, would, would voice it if they didn't. But they certainly seem to be very, very uh, positive with this quarterback and have a ton of faith of him. And I didn't even mention, Kevin, Oh, by the way, they may have the best or one of the best defenses in the entire NFL. Yeah, I want to get to that because I think Nick Bosa might be the best player in the NFL right now. I don't know if that's even an, an exaggeration because I do want to get to that in a moment. But on Purdy, 
Did anybody see it coming? Like, you know, Sam Howell was drafted in the fifth round by Washington, you know, and he was at, you know, he was a known entity because the year before people thought he would have been a first round pick. So there's been a lot of discussion of Sam Howell, but there's been no discussion from really people in the know that says he's ready. Was there any conversation that you guys were having with people, you know, uh, with, within the, the walls of, of that franchise that were saying, man, this guy Purdy, he's going to be – he can play. You know, he's going to get a chance somewhere down the line. We're really, really enthusiastic about him. Was there any of that going on? I don't think there was. And if there was, I didn't hear it, Kev, because let's be honest, he was third on the depth chart. Not like you talk about that guy that often. The, the, all, all the talk was – is Trey Lance going to be better than Jimmy Garoppolo? Is Trey, and now that Jimmy's playing better, is Trey Lance going to get his job back when he's healthy? That was all the discussion. I didn't hear anyone talking about Brock Purdy until, of course, he came in and then I think completed his first 10 passes. So is Jimmy Garoppolo going to get his job back when he's healthy, whether it's you know during the postseason or next year? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, that old adage which is complete bs that you can't lose your job to injury of course you can alex smith did to colin kaepernick right uh millions of people have done it so um if brock purdy's playing well and they're hot and they've won all these games and they're going through the playoffs my guess would be that no jimmy g doesn't get his job back not this season uh well he's not under contract for next season so you guys would have to re-sign him he'll become an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year which is interesting i think um from our perspective because i do think that washington will be in the quarterback market again um in this upcoming offseason and they were interested feldy in garoppolo last offseason before he ended up having that that surgery um which apparently killed a, a potential deal between washington and san francisco so um you know, with respect to Purdy, how much of how well he's looked so far do you put uh, or do you give credit to Kyle Shanahan for? Like, could he be this in any other system with any other coach other than, you know, a Sean Payton or a Sean McVay or a Kyle Shanahan type? I Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, he's He would be good. I think, I think he's flourishing more because of Kyle Shanahan. So, to answer your question, I give Kyle a lot of credit. Um, I, I think Kyle has put him in a great situation. I think Kyle's an excellent play caller. Um, the problems the 49ers have had offensively in the past were that Jimmy G, as good as he was, would make one bonehead play every game. Some just dumb pass into triple coverage, <laughs> some coughing up the football, something that was not play call related. There's been some criticism uh, and and I don't think it's rightfully so of Shanahan that like he ran Debo up the middle in a game when he didn't need to, and Debo you know tweaked his ankle, or that Trey Lance was running between the tackles when he got hurt. You know that that is the only criticism I've heard of Kyle Shanahan uh, this season. His play calling's been excellent. They've been playing great. It's a team that really likes each other. Um, so yeah, I give him a lot of credit for Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy deserves credit for the talent. Uh, he's been made even better by playing for Kyle Shanahan. Uh, what has Christian McCaffrey meant since that trade? Everything. I mean, to talk about just changing the enthusiasm, uh, a- adding an exciting back that 
Uh, it doesn't seem you can overwork him. I know, you know, the last two seasons prior to this, you know, I played 10 games, but so far he's been durable and they can throw to him. They can pass to him. And, and you've probably known this Kev, cause you've been down at, you know, probably a Panthers commanders game where you were on the field. He was down there before the game without his pad on. He's not that big a guy. No. I mean, he's, he's, he's not, I mean, yes, he's ripped, obviously. He's, he's unbelievably shaped, but not that big a guy. And he is, just as tough as they come and he has just energized this offense and it takes pressure off Debo and takes pressure off Brandon Ayuk and it takes pressure off George Kittle and now now you got Brock Purdy's got a million weapons he can go to all right let's talk about the defense are there any weaknesses on that defense not many uh the the defensive line might be the best in football and you might be right Nick Bosa might be the best player in football and you talk about a guy that, uh, you know, you talk about a guy in shape, right? Without his jersey on, even with his jersey on, he looks like, you know, Popeye. Uh, I don't know that there's a better guy with a better motor uh, than Nick Bosa. He's unbelievable how well he plays. And their defense, you know, they, they give up like 10 points a game, 11 points a game, and, and which takes all kinds of pressure off Brock Purdy in the offense. Their defense feels they can win every game. Their defense feels that if the offense scores 10 points, two touchdowns, they're going to win the game. That's how good that defense is. That's how confident that defense is. And Dre Greenlaw, uh, he gets talked about out here. I don't know if he gets talked about nationally. Uh, he's had an unbelievable uh, season. And Fred Warner is no. having a Pro Bowl season. I mean, they're, they're just tremendous. You know, it's it's strange because I, I, I we've been talking about the Niners when we talk the league rather than just this team here for a while now about the addition of McCaffrey. Cooley said that the addition of McCaffrey is basically giving Jimmy G the answers to the test before the test because he and Kittle on the field at the same time basically dictate so much uh, of what you'll see in coverage um, before the snap that it just it makes it easy. And then defensively, they're so they're so dominant and and Bosa's unblockable. Um, but I'm curious, you know, uh, in watching a little bit of the Brock Purdy games, I don't think the 49ers have played a defense as good as Washington's with Brock Purdy, you know, starting. I know he came in in the middle of that uh, Miami game or early in the Miami game, right? It was the Miami game that he came in, I think. Or was yep. it? Yeah. Yep. And yep. then, and then yep. started the Bucks game. And the Bucks, you know, they're, they're a mess right now. Seattle's given up a lot of yards and a lot of points. What is the thought out there about him against Washington's defense, which has been pretty good this year? Well, you know, the 49ers obviously are still – they're playing for things, right? They, they, they want to get the two seed. They're currently right. the three behind Minnesota. You get the two seed, you're guaranteed two home games. They could still get two home games as the three seed, but they'd like to guarantee it. They're not going to catch Philadelphia and get the bye. So they're still playing for a lot. I don't think there's any chance they'll take Washington lightly. They've, they saw what Washington did to Philadelphia. They've seen Washington. They've seen that division. Um, yeah, it might be the best defense they've – they faced. I agree. Seattle's defense was not tremendous. Um, they, you know, you look at, at, at uh, who the, the Niners have played, and uh, I'm trying to think if they've played a, a top defense. The Saints defense is pretty damn yeah. good. You know, they and they've had yeah. a lot of the issues Washington has had, which is just scoring. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, this will be this will certainly be 
a good test for Purdy. And Washington now, what, has had a couple games to look at tape of Purdy, and, and it's not he's not going to surprise them. Right. Right. They know what he can do now. They've seen this. So um, this will be a really good test. But there's something about this kid, and I think, you know, I think he's like 22, Kev, that, that he's, he's, he's just had a lot of poise, right? Does not – has not seemed rattled. There was a game, I can't even remember whether I, they all blend together. It was the last game or the game before where uh, he, he threw a pick, and then when he got it back, uh, right next to where he went, right down the middle and let him do another touchdown, Just it, it didn't phase him. Uh, he just shows a lot of composure. And he wasn't healthy for the Seattle game. You know, for, for everybody listening out there, he had a rib injury going into that game um, against Seattle and ended up playing well. So, real quickly, I know Debo won't be there for, for, for the game uh, Saturday, which is good. Um, Purdy, is he healthy? All is, all is well? I mean, they've had, you guys have had essentially that mini buy off the Thursday night game. Yeah, so it's a long week. Uh, yeah, I think he is. I think they were, the ribs were a little sore. But I think he is. Uh, I think he is pretty healthy. I, 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 he's going to be fine. But you know, I think he was a little sore. If he's in any kind of pain, he hasn't. He hasn't shared that with anybody. You think Kyle and and Mike uh, still love to 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 try to beat Washington and Dan? You think that's still a thing with them or not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they would say no. I would say human nature. Probably yes. You know, I can't imagine that uh, if you got Kyle in a in a room isolated with no cell phones and the cone of truth and maybe a couple adult beverages, and you asked him his thoughts on Dan. <laughs> I would bet maybe there's. I would bet maybe there's still some motivation. I would think Kevin, human nature being what it is. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, we're talking to Dave Feldman, of course, at Feldy on Twitter. All right, so tell me about the college uh, games that you're doing for ESPN, what you've done, who you've seen, and what do you, what do you have coming up? Well, I do Pac-12 games mainly. Um, sore subject for you, but I've done UCLA three times. Right. I was hoping I would get UCLA-Maryland. That was a Fox game. Right. Um, and as it turned out, as you know, that wasn't much of a game. Um, so I've seen UCLA. They're really good. I've done Stanford. I've got USC Washington coming up on the 30th. Uh, so I'm mainly doing West Coast games, mainly Pac-12. Uh, occasionally I'll do a WCC Gonzaga game or BYU, um, and they bounce me around. I'll work with former Terp Adrian, uh, Adrian Branch. Yep, I've heard that. Who call. Everyone remembers yep. was a great, great Terp who was uh, Len Bias's roommate uh, at Maryland for a year. Um, and I'll do occasionally I'll do a game with uh, Jay Billis, who's a buddy of mine, or um, Sean Farnham, who played at UCLA. So they they move you around with different guys. And you're enjoying that. You're good. I mean, I've heard you and Adrian, you and you and and Branch do a couple games together. I've heard you with Sean uh, before. Um, you're, you're, you're excellent at it. And it's, you know, the fact that you're out doing mostly West coast games, by the way, UCLA looked, Maryland was, um, 
Maryland was really uh, – look, they, they got their ass kicked, and I'm not sure that they would beat them more than one out of ten times if they played ten times. But Maryland was coming off a grind of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Tennessee. Um, and then they, you know, then the UCLA game all within two weeks. It was all within a week and a half. And I think they were a little bit tired. But, you know, UCLA uh, destroyed Kentucky the other day. Jaquez is really good. That freshman is so good. And I love Tiger Campbell. Do you think that Mick Cronin's got a Final Four team or not? I do. I do. You talk about the freshman, Amari Bailey. He's unbelievable. Yep. And Jalen Clark's having a great year. And Tiger Campbell is, I believe, underrated. I mean, he's, he's, he's just he's one of those guys. I'm not saying he's as good as Juan Dixon was in 2001, but he's one of those guys like Juan Dixon, Kevin, where he doesn't get rattled. He just kind of plays sort of calm like, this is not a big deal for me. I've been through much worse. I can deal with this. And he's just an unbelievable leader. And to your point about Hawkins, he might have the best footwork of any big oh, man, uh, yeah. maybe not named Drew Timmy. His, his, his footwork is unbelievable. Uh, unfortunately, probably a, maybe a little too small to be a, a great pro. But gosh, he is just such a good player. Uh, I think they're a really good team. And Mick Cronin, I think, is a, is a really good coach. And it was obvious that he and and Willard have a lot of respect for each other. But Mick Cronin's team, um, boy, they can play. I, I just have loved Hawkes going back to their Final Four run. There's, there, you can't speed him up. He's so high IQ. He's so good at getting to wherever spot he wants to get to. He's got old school in his game. He's got new school in his game. Just, just everything about Hawkes I love um, watching. And I agree with you on Campbell. I mean, he's not the scorer that Dixon was, you know, as a college player. No, um, no. But but they've got seniors no. to go with that, you know, incredible freshman. Um, they're gonna they're gonna be dangerous. And you know, one last one. I mean, I, I wasn't playing on asking you this, but just thinking about UCLA, I mean, UCLA and Southern Cal headed to the Big Ten. I mean, Maryland, UCLA, Maryland, uh, USC is going to be a thing in a few years in basketball. I mean, what are we doing here? People out here are sick about it, Kevin. I mean, obviously, I mean, it, it destroys the Pac-12, right? It, yeah. It's like you're taking USC and UCLA are, are you know, I mean, with yes, okay, Arizona, but these are the marquee guys certainly in football and basketball, um, boy, and then, and then you feel like, you know, there'll be a mass exodus. That's the rumor. Like Colorado will try to leave. Arizona will go somewhere else. Will Gonzaga come here? It's, um, uh, people will believe it when it happens. I know it's going to happen, but uh, I'm a traditionalist. I didn't like it when Maryland left the ACC. Um, so it's, it's certainly not good for the Pac-12, which, by the way, is already – trying to fight for respect and, and, and feels the real East Coast bias and all of that. So it's uh, – but having said that, UCLA and Maryland, you could go back to – and you're one of the Maryland great Maryland historians. You could go back to when, you know, Lefty said, that, you know, Maryland was going to be the UCLA of the East, yep. right? So yep. it's, it could be a great rivalry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just it doesn't make sense. The Pac-12 is in big trouble. I hated when Maryland went to the Big Ten, but really in – in retrospect, um, you know, the, they're going to be a part of one of the two or three Super Leagues being in the Big Ten. And if they were left in the ACC, who knows how it would have worked out. Although I think the market size has always helped them, you know, kind of D.C. and Baltimore uh, combined. By the way, one more. Um, how much trouble are the Warriors in? 
Well, Steph's shoulder is a legit thing. He's not going to rush it. He, it's it's going to be another three, four weeks before he comes back. Without Steph Curry, they're not winning a championship. Clearly, with Steph Curry, uh, they're still a long shot, but they have a chance. Um, you know, I, I think I think Kevin that uh, I think the punch of Draymond Green to Jordan Poole uh, that was caught on yeah. tape. Uh, and and they've moved on. I think that um, I think that's not over. I think it's over that those guys pass to each other. They're fine. They're it's all good. But I think there's still a lingering effect that that affects this team in general. I just don't know how how a team just totally gets over that. Uh, one of their best players hitting another player, uh, especially Draymond being one of the leaders. Having said that, Draymond's played really well. Poole's been up and down since then. Um, but without Steph, who's having an unbelievable season, he was third in the league in scoring. Um, and Clay, who's, you know, Clay's not what he was, but how could he be with those, you know, ACL uh, and the cruciate, uh, or the, yeah. he had the two back to back knee surgeries. Right. Um, uh, so. Uh, it's going to be uh, a tough uphill road for the Warriors, but if Steph is healthy, I would not count them out. Well, the Giants lost Correa. Uh, that was the first thing I saw this morning when I woke up. I don't know, you know, if that's yeah. a big deal yeah. out there or not. Yeah. But but at least you've got the Niners um, right now looking like you know a definite NFC Championship you know potential uh, winner. Um, final score prediction, if you've got one for Saturday. Yeah, I think the 49ers will win at home. I think it could be a closer game than people think. Uh, but I think the Niners, the Niners can score some points. And, um, you know, I'm going to say that the Niners win it 28-10. to 10. Dave Feldman, everybody, at Feldy on Twitter, uh, NBC Sports Bay Area when you're out there. And, of course, if you're a big college basketball fan, many times you can catch them late night on ESPN, ESPN 2 or ESPNU somewhere. Um, you'll see Feldy calling <laughs> games. And uh, in between doing all that, you know, he's a mere single-digit handicap, uh, playing all of the finest courses in Northern California. And I'm sure a few in Southern California you get to as well. Uh, and maybe a, a trip to Bandon Dunes, you know, on a, on a quick flight since you're oh. already on the West Coast. Um, <laughs> you've been there. I love I, how, how, how many times have you, language, yeah, yeah, how many times have you been there? I've been there about four times. Yeah, United has a nonstop flight yeah. from San Francisco. It's an hour and a half flight. I love Bandon. All right. Uh, be good. Happy yeah. holidays to you. Thanks. It's good to catch up. Kevin, you too, buddy. Great talking to you. Happy New Year. Dave Feldman, everybody, one of the real good guys that's worked in local sports media uh, here. Uh, he's back home out in the Bay Area and killing it out there. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, Tommy tomorrow, Cooley on Friday. Have a good one.